Are you ready to make a real difference in the world and especially to the people around you? Welcome to the Higher Purpose Podcast, where we celebrate the road less traveled in business, leadership, and life. We welcome you to another conversation that we believe will provide you with the insight and inspiration you need on your journey. Here's your host, Kevin Monroe. It's my pleasure to welcome you to episode 151 of the Higher Purpose Podcast. You know it's a solemn and somber time in our country and around the world as we've witnessed some horrific events and unbelievable actions. I've processed this like you have, and here's what I've concluded. It's not a time to be silent. However, many people are silent. And many are silent out of fear, fear of saying something wrong or sounding ignorant or worse, sounding insensitive. Well, I can't sit back and do nothing. I realize that this podcast is a platform and it's a platform of opportunity and responsibility. It was just five weeks ago that my dear friend Rick Rigsby joined me to talk about hope as we navigate our way through this pandemic. Last week, Rick and I were in some text conversations, and I kept feeling prompted to invite Rick back to join me for a conversation about race and what's going on now, and he graciously agreed. In addition to being a great friend, an author, keynote speaker, Rick is also a pastor. And conversations about what's going on in our world aren't just conversations about race. These are matters of the heart and issues of faith. So wherever you land on a faith spectrum, I hope you can lean in, listen, and learn from this conversation. Please join us. Well, Rick Rigsby, I want to welcome you back to the podcast. It was just five weeks ago that you were here and we talked about our need for hope in light of a global pandemic. And then stuff happened. (laughs) Kevin, what a thrill to be with you. I cannot believe how our world has changed in five weeks, that the pandemic is the second story now on the evening news. Who would have thought that five weeks ago? We sure didn't. So last week, here's where I ended the podcast. I couldn't do a normal recap. I ended the podcast with the words of St. Francis of Assisi. Lord, Make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there Mm. is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. Mm. And then I start getting these texts from my friend Rick, who's telling me he's going on global television to talk about the race relations. Would you pray for me, brother? And, and we're in this chat and we're in this. And, and all of a sudden I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why don't you come back here and let's have that conversation here, Rick, because we need to have this conversation <laughs> we need to share it with your community, my community. And that's what I was wondering. How do I respond? And like I said, St. Francis's prayer led me. And then our conversation led me here. So That's why we're here. Amen. Amen. You know, Kevin, I so appreciate this opportunity to talk because I have the perspective, as you know, which is similar to your perspective, which is really embodied in what Francis of Assisi said. And that is that this isn't a political issue. When I say this, of course, I'm referring to the chaos that's gripping major cities in America. This isn't a legislative issue. Uh, You know, you can seek redress legislatively, you can seek redress politically, but this is an offense to the heart of Almighty God. There is no if, and, or buts about it. And if people would say to me, well, verify that in the scripture. Greatest commandment that the Lord gave us is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our strength, and with all our might, with all our soul, with every fiber of our being. And God said in Deuteronomy 6, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That was so important, it was ratified by Jesus in the New Testament. Love your neighbor as yourself. That means it can't be an attitude of superiority. That means it can't be, I hate white people. That means it can't be, I hate those people. This isn't a police issue. This isn't a protest issue. 
This is a human issue. It's a moral issue because it's an offense against Almighty God. And that's where we're starting. So <laughs> maybe we shouldn't have started at 90 miles an hour, Kevin. Oh, it's good. It's good. So I want to ask you this is at the heart of it, I guess I'll say. There are all these other levels like an onion that people are peeling back. But when we get to the heart of the matter, it's a matter of the heart. Yes, sir. Yeah. So yeah. I just want to start with gratitude, though. And I want to say I'm grateful. I want to start by saying what I'm grateful for. I'm grateful that Rick Rigsby is my friend, my brother. And that when I reached out to you and said, hey, Rick, I want to have this conversation with you. I want you to come back just, you know, five weeks later after you were here. And that you graciously said yes. You moved some things on your calendar to be here. And I'm grateful that you and I are going to have a conversation that sheds more light than heat. Amen. On this topic. Amen. Amen, brother. I love your attitude. You know, you're one of my favorite people, Kevin. You know that. I do know that. I'm grateful for that. And you're one of my favorite people because you're always making a choice to see what can be and what could be. And, and I think that there's so many hidden treasures that are being revealed to us during this time of darkness. Mm -hmm. Isaiah 45, 3 makes a powerful statement that I have treasures for you, riches in secret places that you do not know to remind you that I'm almighty God. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we're seeing, we're seeing people come together and talk. We're seeing people reason. Yes, you see the extremes on television, but look what else we're seeing that may not be so obvious. Some of my favorite pictures are pictures of hope, where mm -hmm. I see police interacting with protesters, where I see protesters reminding other people that you can't lump all police together. When I see people gathered around the table wanting to talk and listening to their children, and listening to others who are invited to the table. There are a lot of positive things that are going on in our society that I think it's good to take note of. It's not all bad. It never is all bad. There are always opportunities for us to improve and for us to grow. Okay, it never is all bad. That's right. There are always opportunities. Now, Rick, I wasn't even really mindful of this until you just started talking. I'm remembering. You're a media guy. That's your background. Yeah. Don't hold it against me. <laughs> <laughs> My shot was crooked there. And <laughs> as you were saying. When you look at television, right, and how media, just from your perspective, what is it that causes media to focus on the things they focus on. And I appreciate some of the media really working hard to show positive scenes, working mm -hmm. hard to find those things and say, you know, everybody else, there's so many people that are showing all of the extremes. Yeah. We want to showcase the good because we do know that good is happening. So why is it so hard for yeah. good to get prime time in media? I think it's because of the narrowness of the profession. By and large, I think the media represents a very important estate. But because the goal is to tell a story, there are certain elements that have to be featured. And I don't like this. And I fought against it even when I was in television news. But we knew leaving the station that morning how we were going to pretty much frame the day. And so in order to frame a great story that will stop somebody from going to the restroom, there needs to be a hero, there needs to be a villain, there needs to be somebody that you can aim something toward. And the elements of telling a story require dramatic features. And so what that does is that puts you in a box and it produces a very myopic view of the world. I would tell my students at Texas A&M when I would teach media criticism to not be afraid to look at other ways that news is disseminated. And I would often look at the BBC or I would also encourage them to look at public television or national public radio with this one clear warning that all media, you know, we use that word both singular and plural, all media 
have an agenda. You just have to understand that. The second Bill O'Reilly said, he used to say, welcome to the no spin zone. He (laughs) had just spun a particular agenda. So as long as we realize going in that all media have an agenda, you're okay. But at least public facilities like the public TV and the public radio, they offer a little bit more context. But that's not the goal of mainstream network news. The goal is to keep you in your seat. And they know, I knew what it took. I need a hero and I need a villain. Now that creates a very narrow, myopic view of the world. And I have advocated, if all you see is what you see, you don't see all there is, it needs to be seen. And so we're getting just a glimpse of life and it is a very emotive, very dramatic, very spectacular glimpse because that's what sells. Okay, so what you just said is one of my favorite Rickisms that I hear. I'm serious. I hear that echo in my mind at least once a week, and I shared it with somebody day before yesterday. That this whole idea of if you think you're seeing all there is to see, you're not seeing all there is. That's right. I'm curious of what you've seen on media. What are the emotions that have been stirred in you in the last two weeks? Yeah. Um- First of all, watching a man murdered on a sidewalk in Minneapolis was horrific. I don't care what color the person is. No human being should have to die like that, calling out for their mother. The emotions, I had a visceral reaction to that. A visceral reaction. In other words, a gut-wrenching, tear-producing devastating, horrific reaction to that. No human being should have to die like that. No human being. And so that's one reaction. I also had a visceral reaction to protesters not understanding the First Amendment to the Constitution of the United States. I had a visceral reaction to buildings being burned. A visceral reaction to the looting taking place. A visceral reaction to police knocking down a 75-year-old man. A visceral reaction to the way in which we are treating each other on both sides with a lack of respect, care, and civility. I've had a visceral reaction to all of these things. And, Kevin, it points to one simple thing, and that is that we have to get beyond politics and legislation. We have to get back to some sense of common decency and common sense. But to answer your question, what reaction? It has been one of just tremendous, heartbreaking empathy and sadness. Because I know that as a people, we're better than this. I know that. I know as a people, we are better than this. And so my heart is breaking. My heart is aching. I've cried more in the past couple of weeks than I have in, in years. Mm. Just watching the scenes coming from my television screen, having the conversations with people that I've been having round the clock, my heart just breaks for America. It does. Martin King said something interesting 60 years ago. 60 years ago. Martin Luther King Jr. said, we're either going to learn to live together as brothers and sisters we're going to die together as fools. His exact words were, we're going to perish together as fools. And right now we're doing some perishing. Yes, we are, brother. So, oh, okay. How are you making sense of what you've seen? There you go. That's the question of the hour. That's the reason why I wanted to be on this show with you, other than to see your smiling face. (laughs) I know that your show is, like my podcast, is not driven exclusively toward a Christian audience. And I'm like you. I welcome all faith. I welcome people that don't share my faith. Everybody is welcomed on my podcast. And I know that's true for you. So with that said, I happen to be a man of faith. I happen to be a pastor. And so my paradigm is framed by the Holy Scriptures. I was going to say, when we start talking about sense-making, 
Yeah, that's right. You gotta go to your worldview. That's right. That's exactly right. That's exactly right, Kevin. And so how do I make sense of this? I have to see it literally as the way in which Jesus would see it. And this is an affront to the Father, to God the Father. In the beginning, all men and women were created equal. And even the Constitution talks about having certain inalienable rights, even though decision makers did not follow the Constitution. But God Almighty followed his word and created us equally in his image. You know what that tells me? Whether I like it or not, all the people that I have ought against are children of God, created in his image. The protesters, the police, those four officers charged with murder are children of God. And I think at some point, we've got to get past our labels past our emotions, even past our own sense of judging other people's sin, and start looking at the Word of God. Can I give you an example of what I'm talking about, brother? Please. I'm hearing people shout, we want justice, we want justice. I want justice too. You want justice. Mm -hmm. My biblical view instructs me in this way. Let the courts handle the justice. And Rick, Don't do justice. The Bible says, be justice. What are you talking about, Rick? If you look at Joshua, Joshua talks about justice ought be given to those who are homeless, those who are widows, those who are fatherless. If you look at Micah 6, chapter 6, verse 8, Micah says, here's the definition of justice. Walk in righteousness with a heart of humility. I would love to be able to say, for a Christian, we have to really challenge ourselves to have a biblical view, a biblical view of everything that we're seeing. And a biblical view of justice is to not do justice, but to be justice, to walk in righteousness, to realize that everyone is a child of God. That's what shapes my thinking. And so with if that's what's shaping my thinking, I have to really listen very carefully to what the Holy Spirit is saying. And what the Holy Spirit is saying to me is, Rick, if you want to see change out there, it needs to start in here. And my father spoke those words to me. My father's been gone for 25 years, but about a week ago, I asked the wisest man I'd ever met in my life, that third grade dropout. I said, Daddy, if you could talk to your son right now, what would you say? And in my heart, I heard him say, Son, Before you can seek change out there, change has to occur in here. There's this great preacher by the name of R.A. Torrey. And on one occasion, he was in front of a congregation. And he said, do you folks really want revival? Do you really want revival? He said, go home. Leave the church building. Go home. Get on your knees. Draw a circle around yourself and start the revival with the person in the circle. Hmm. I believe that the God of the universe... It didn't create a pandemic, didn't create all of this chaos, but is speaking to us through it. And he is saying, humble yourselves, repent, seek my face, ask yourself, is there any wickedness? Then I promise to heal. You know what I've been doing is I told you off the air a couple of days ago, I have been doing more seeking the Lord during this time in finger pointing. And the reason why is Paul said it best, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I've been asking God, is there any prejudice in me? Pull it out, yank it out. Is there any wickedness in me? Bring it to the forefront. Is there anything vile inside of me? Is there a root of bitterness anywhere in my life? Because according to Hebrews, if there is, it will defile me and others. I want it out. Do I need to ask forgiveness to anybody? Have I offended anybody? Have I used any derogatory terms? Have I not listened to people who are different colors than I am? Have I just judged all people the same with statements like, they always say we play the race card. Lord, start with me. Start with me. So to answer your question in the short, 
I make sense of everything I see. <laughs> Some people may argue that that was the short answer, Rick, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> By viewing the Bible as my lens. <laughs> Man, it took a long time to get to Grandma's house, didn't it, baby? <laughs> oh, no, it's good. It's good. And at the risk, even before you went to Micah, Micah 6-8 was running through my mind. Wow. Do justice. Yes. And love mercy. Yes. Yes. Love mercy. What does it look like to love mercy? Yes. For the people, you know, that, that you'd much rather slap across the face. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. You know, I don't necessarily agree with the Ku Klux Klan, but I defend their right to freedom of speech. And the point that I'm trying to make is that we have certain inalienable rights as citizens in the United States of America founded under God. And it's each of our responsibilities to carry that out. It's not our responsibility to burn down buildings and to tear apart people. It's not our responsibility to hide behind our labels. When we get to heaven, God's not going to ask us, hey, were you on the left or were you on the right? Oh, baby. (laughs) Are you kidding me? But you know what he is going to say? Did you love your neighbor as yourself? Did you look out for the widow down the street? Did you try to do justice or did you become justice in an unjust environment? Okay. Now, Rick, I want to ask you something. So you are a pastor, you're a minister, but you also have a PhD from the University of Oregon that includes studies of protest movements. That's right. So as someone who studied protest movements and participated in protest movements, what prompted you to study protest movements? That is a great question. I never get asked that. There's another reason I love you. (laughs) And so all I wanted to do, I was shocked that the University of Oregon accepted me. And if you would have looked at my undergraduate transcripts, you would have been shocked too. But I was able, after a television career, to get a master's degree. And the next thing I know, I'm choosing the University of Oregon because in the 80s, It was known as the place for critical mass media. Looking at the media critically, looking at the way in which the media attempts to construct reality in society, and I got a phenomenal education. As a doctoral student at the University of Oregon in the Department of Speech Communication, one of the requirements was that you had to have a multiple foci. So I had to have not only a focus in media theory and criticism, but we were all encouraged to have a focus in rhetorical theory. Rhetoric is the antiquated term for co-humanication, the process of communicating. And so I got a great education, even argued for years that one of the greatest rhetorical theorists was the Apostle Paul. You don't believe me, just read Romans. (laughs) And so my second focus was rhetorical theory. And then my senior professor was a man by the name of Charlie Leisner who had collected civil rights data, primary sources for years and years, and just sort of waited for some graduate student to come along to show an interest in it. I was mesmerized by his two classes, the background and protest movements, which made one simple statement. And that statement was, these folks from Africa didn't come over as slaves, they came over as proud chiefs and leaders in their community. And then they were bred together to hate each other. And somehow they survived. And then his contemporary applications of the civil rights movement. And I just took the bait. And I became his student. And my dissertation focused on Birmingham in 1963 as a critical turning point for the civil rights movement through the eyes of network news using rhetorical theory paradigm for my critical assessment piece. And so I was able to converge all of my interests and focus on the civil rights movement. I want to tell you, Kevin, I interviewed hundreds of former protesters that were part of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, black, brown, Jewish, white. I also interviewed folks that represented the other side, that represented what we call the established order. And Just got a real profound education in the area of civil rights as it related to Montgomery bus boycott as a starting point with Rosa Parks in 
December of 1955, and I concluded my studies at King's death in April 4th, 1968, when he was shot as he stood on the balcony of the Lorraine Hotel. So in my teaching career, whether it was at Fresno State or Oregon or Chico State, or most of those years at Texas A&M, I not only taught media courses, I not only taught film courses, I not only taught rhetorical theory, but my favorite thing to teach was the rhetoric of the civil rights movement. And most of my students, they took classes because they liked Dr. Rigsby. And most of them would say, I don't even know anything about civil rights, which I would say the same thing. Growing up in California, I didn't know much about it either. But by the time the semester was over, we had a profound appreciation for what we called American history. The story of the civil rights movement is a chapter in American history and a significant part of this great experiment called America. Mm. Okay, you included with Dr. King's death, and I'm going to share something with you. Sure. You listening. I grew up in the South. Yeah. I was born in Ohio, but I grew up in the South. My parents moved when I was two years old. When Dr. King died, I was seven years old. I was with my dad at a restaurant that night. I can take you to the restaurant today. I mean, it's still there, a little bitty barbecue place called White Diamond. And back then, news was very different than it is now. We did not have a 24-hour news cycle. You had Walter Cronkite, you know, giving you the evening news, signing off, saying that's the way it is, you know, whatever that date was. We were in this restaurant. I grew up in Perry, Georgia. So it's probably 15 miles away in a little town, Bonaire, I think, Kathleen, one of those little towns there. And it's a small place. There are probably 25, 30 people in there. And Rick, this breaks my heart to say this. But when it was announced that Dr. King had been assassinated, most of the people in the restaurant cheered. Hmm. And I was telling a friend just last week this story because it all came back to me. It's never far, but it came back. Now, my father wasn't one of those cheering. I can say I'm grateful for that. But it's seven years old. I had a formed enough conscience to know something was seriously wrong about that. Yeah. You don't cheer the death of anyone. Anybody. Yeah. Right. Don't celebrate that. But Rick, that was that. So, I mean, I grew up understanding those racial tensions. The civil rights happened in my community, right? So, I mean, we were in one of those towns that had had segregated schools that went through desegregation and all of that. And I remember the racial tensions. So I want to ask something. As you've studied protest, was there anger in the 50s and 60s? Extreme anger. Yeah, there was, right? I mean, the anger was just as present. Oh, I believe yeah. the anger was there. So what's different, you yeah. know, from then to now? Because it's not like peaceful protest didn't mean the protesters weren't angry. Yeah. Yeah, that's a very good question. First of all, before I ask, and please make sure I get back to what's different. That's a very important question. There are people that are listening right now that live in the deep South. I know. And some of the finest people I've ever met in my life live in the deep South. Some of the finest that I've ever met live in the deep South. I like to tell people that was then. Yeah. In 68, what you just shared is a very common tale. I've even heard that people applauded in 63, 22nd of November, when Mm. Kennedy was assassinated. And those are children of God. And like you so brilliantly put it, we should never, ever, ever be grateful and thankful for an American citizen who was assassinated. Are you kidding me? But that was the time, right? And I helped my students to see that. I had a lot of very conservative students, and I tend to be more conservative. And my conservative students would say, Dr. Rigsby, I have a real hard time learning about Martin King. And I'd say, why? Well, because of all the womanizing. And I mean, I didn't hide anything. We studied everything, right? Including the womanizing. I said, let me ask you a question. Do you read the Psalms? (laughs) Oh, baby. David was as wrong as two left feet. If you don't believe me, look at the way that they tried to make sure that he was alive. It's in the Bible. When they put women in the concubine, when he didn't touch him, they proclaimed the king is dead. And so the point that I'm trying to make is I read the Psalms. The point I'm trying to make is if you took the bad parts out of my life, Kevin, you'd never want me on this podcast. Mm. 
And so we can't just judge a segment of a person's life. We have to look at the totality of the impact. And that's the way I choose to look at the South. And so I have the firm conviction that we can't just judge a segment of a person's life or a segment of a portion of the United States of America. We have to look at the totality and the role that it played. When Black people judge the way that all of white people and the role that white people played, we're just as guilty of participating in a racist kind of climate, right? And so the way I used to teach it at Texas A&M is there were some ugly moments in the South, no doubt about it. And people acted really ugly. We got that. We understand that. But you cannot continue to judge based on what happened back in 1968. But you're right. You're absolutely right. It is horrific for me to even imagine people applauding the death of King as they did, the death of John Kennedy as they did, the death of Robert Kennedy, simply because their views were different. And I think that speaks to the much deeper issue. That issue is still with us today. We ought to have a little bit of respect and a little bit of civility. One of the things I loved about my father is that sitting on that front porch, my father could argue vehemently with people that he was opposed to. But at the end of the hour, that World War II vet would get up and shake that other person's hand, and they would look forward to the next time that they were together. That's missing in our culture. Now, let me get to the heart of your question. What's different about this protest? as compared to the civil rights movement. To me, it's very simple. The protests that I'm seeing today don't seem to have a direction. And as a result, there's a lot of confusion and there's a lot of chaos. Make no mistake about it. The protests of the 50s and 60s wasn't perfect, but they did have a beacon, a moral compass. And that compass was largely shaped by the black church, which caused folks to look at God. And it shaped the narrative of the leadership of the civil rights movement to the point that you heard Martin King say virtually every day that we must seek a society that is at peace, that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And perhaps the greatest rhetorical reminder was his notion of the beloved community, that one day I have a dream that we would all live together and that my four children would play together and pray together with kids of other colors. He was always pointing toward this moral imperative of loving one another. Don't see that today. And as a result, you see widespread confusion, widespread chaos. I love the energy of the protest today. I love the pragmatism of the young folks today. We can't even come together to define what protest is or to define what justice is. And so if you talk to people, regardless of color, regardless of age, for some people, justice is an eye for an eye. For other people, justice is the way that we defined it. For some people, protesting is peacefully assembling. For some people, protesting is throwing things into storefront windows and getting as much merchandise as they can. And so in the absence of leadership, There is no moral compass to point people toward, and there can be confusion. Now, with that said, I have to be honest with you, Kevin. My generation bears some responsibility for that. I don't think that we've done a good job. I'm 64. I don't think the baby boomer generation has done a good enough job teaching a nonviolent passive resistance to the generation that's coming up. I don't think we've done a good job in our schools, and I'm not blaming school teachers. I'm blaming decision makers that have neutered critical elements of protest movements out of textbooks and out of curricula. I don't think we've done a good job teaching and reminding people of the Constitution. For example, the First Amendment called a compromise to the original document, guarantees us the right to gather together and to express our point of view. That's Article 10. Article 11 guarantees us the right for peaceful assembly. We don't have the right to riot. We don't have the right to loot. We don't have the right to attack police. And so what's happening is, in the absence of a moral compass, 
I see a lot of people who have substituted the word justice for vengeance. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay, so I'm watching our time. There are a couple of things I want to get into that become where we started, talking about this is personal. It's got to start with me. I can't change the system. I can work for system change, but I can change me. I want to ask this. You've talked about coming together. Yeah. So let me ask it this way, Rick. If someone is coming from a place of love and sincerity, how do you respond when they ask a question that just shows a lot of ignorance? You ask me personally? Yeah, yeah. It doesn't matter how ignorant I think their question is. That's number one. And that's a very important point, and it speaks to the value of your question. It doesn't matter how in-depth or how shallow and superficial I think their question is. What matters is my response. Hmm. What matters is I show dignity. What matters is I show respect. What matters is that I take a biblical stand. What does my Bible say? Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow toward anger. Christians have this, we have this incredible opportunity right now to model Jesus. Do you know that the church is on the front porch of this great country and that people are watching what we say and what we do? This is a marvelous, lovely, splendid, golden opportunity to model Jesus and not model ourselves. And I think here's a great chance to model Jesus. When somebody asks you a question that many would think is just absolutely ignorant and absolutely ridiculous, are you going to advance your agenda and tell them like it is, or are you going to show the face of Christ? Can you imagine, Kevin, how many stupid questions Jesus was asked? And at one time, I even remember this was his response. He was asked questions like the greatest in the kingdom, and he got up and washed folks' feet. (laughs) In other words, it's not so much the question and the quality of the question. It is, what then shall our response be? And for hundreds of years, our response as a country has been, it's not valid. It's not legitimate. It's not worthy of me commenting. I don't want to get involved. I'm going to remain on the sidelines. I'm going to remain apathetic. It's the race card. And then on the other side, our response has been, they're white. They're never going to change. They're never going to see it our way. You can't trust any of them. See, prejudice runs in all different ways. And all of those ways point to this. This is something that is a concern to Almighty God. Mm. And to me, The blueprint is as simple as this. If my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then, then, yeah. Okay, so I love what you just said and how these misunderstandings, these prejudices, they run in all directions. Yes, I'm not going to ask you to talk to the white people, or but for any of us who have people who are different than us, and that's all of us, right? We all have somebody different from us. What should we fear more right now, saying or doing the wrong thing or saying and doing nothing? Hmm. Man, that's a really good question. I need to go get a fishing pole and sit by a lake and think about that one for a little bit. Well, I tell you, there's an answer that comes to mind from Dr. King. Well, first of all, (laughs) I don't think we should fear, number one. But we are human, so we do need to be concerned. But we do know there are people right now paralyzed, right? Exactly, exactly. They want to have a conversation, but they're afraid. What if I say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing so they do nothing? Exactly. So let me give you an example from Martin King's life as to why doing nothing is the wrong course. 1963, the Civil Rights Movement, Southern Christian Leadership Conference limps into Birmingham. Limps. They'd had their worst defeat in Albany, Georgia, just the year previous. 
Fred Shuttlesworth says, come to Birmingham. We have a chief of public safety named Eugene Theophilus Bull Connor, who is, quote, psychologically incapable, end quote, of using any kind of restraint. And so meeting Martin King in Birmingham were no protesters. They're out of money. And the threat of a court order that basically said, if you march, you will be arrested. Martin King said these words, I don't know what to do, but I have to do something. There it is. He marches, he gets arrested. While he's arrested, the more militant factions of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference come up with this strategy that Martin King would have never approved. Let's use kids. We'll, we'll tell the kids, hey, how would you like to get out of school for a day? Well, the pictures of police dogs attacking kids and water hoses with the force of water that could knock the bark off of a tree so embarrassed the Kennedy administration at the United Nations and all throughout the world that change was inevitable. Also, while in jail, Martin King writes his famous letter from a Birmingham jail. You asked me to wait. Wait is a word that I've heard with piercing familiarity and just answered them in a tone of love. What's the answer to the question? The answer to the question is never being still. It is never saying nothing. I'm talking to my nine-year-old and 12-year-old grandchild, and I'm telling them when you see injustice, it's a threat to justice everywhere. You speak out to your parents. You speak out to your friends, but you can't afford let me change that. Our country can't afford for her citizens to be silent any longer. Yeah. It is not a black thing or a brown thing or a white thing, Kevin. It is a moral issue. And if you're concerned about morality in the United States, regardless of where you come down, regardless of political persuasion, speak out. Do something. Do something. People died for the right to speak out and to do something. That's what made this country great. You know, I think, Kevin, that your comment speaks to a greater issue. We somehow believe that argumentation is a negative thing and that dissension is negative. It was dissension that advanced citizenry. It was dissension, if I'm understanding protest correctly, that said, you know what, we don't want to be part of an unfair British rule any longer. Dissension moves forward democracy. Now, we can make all kinds of arguments as to whether or not we have democracy, but I think you see the point. The point is, if you're sitting on your butt, you can't move forward. That's right. That you have to speak. You have to say, even if you're fearful, I'll be on a very personal level. And I know I shouldn't be motivated by fear. I even reminded myself of it five minutes ago. But I have found over the last couple of weeks that the things that I'm saying, not everybody's going to agree with. And that generates some fear. I'm telling my black friends, it's not a black thing. I'm telling my white friends, it's not a white thing. We're not playing the race card. I'm telling people that hate police, don't hate all police, that the majority of police are good. I get the fear thing, but I can't be motivated by what she might think and what they might think. I have to get my instructions from Almighty God, try my best to understand his word and how it applies to this situation and then have the courage to speak what he says. And when I look at my Bible from Genesis to Revelation, here is the prevailing theme. Love your neighbor as yourself. And even in saying that, Kevin, there are factions that don't want to hear that. That's right. They don't want to hear that. And so my short answer to the great question, we can't be afraid to say the wrong thing. We should be scared to death to not do anything. Thank you, Rick. The words I heard from Dr. King that stuck in my mind, in the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies. 
but the silence of our friends. That's it, brother. That is it. Be quiet. Don't worry. If you say the wrong thing, just say something, right? I mean. You know, Kevin, I say the wrong things every day. So if I'm saying the wrong things every day, I'd rather say the wrong things for good than to say the wrong things for bad. I'm offending somebody every day. Why not help move our country forward? So I want to wrap up with this because time's going to get away from us here. But We don't have three hours today? <laughs> How would you answer the person wondering, what can I do to make a difference now? I think that's a great question to end. There was this Anglican priest by the name of John Stott who said on one occasion, our very, very worst enemy is pride. Our very, very best friend is brokenness. I would say the number one thing that I'm asking myself to do that I would ask my brothers and sisters of all ethnicities, of all political persuasions to do, is to search our own hearts, is to ask, is there any wickedness in us? Is to seek God like we've never sought God before. Is to say, God, show me what I'm not seeing. Is this really a protest issue? No. Is this really a police? No. Is this really a reform the police issue? I don't think so. As much as it is an issue that is a sin before a mighty God that causes God to grieve. And so in that picture, Father, what then is my response? And what I'm hearing the Holy Scripture say is this. Search yourself. Search your heart. Humble yourself and listen to the voice of the Lord. And then have the courage to do what God is telling you to do. It, it might mean doing something my wife did this past week. And that is saying, I'm no longer going to tolerate my friend just saying these messages without me commenting. Called and had a hard conversation. Had a couple of hard conversations. The outcome was positive, but the point remains. We all share a responsibility to live in the United States of America in a united way. And what that does is that dispels and that neuters this notion of, well, I don't have any reason to ask forgiveness. Or It's not my problem, it's their problem. Oh, if you're an American citizen, it's our issue. It's our issue. And that issue is a stench in the nose of Almighty God. Oh, Rick. Thanks for joining today. Is there anything else on your heart to yes. wrap up? Yes. To include this. Yeah. I, Kevin, <laughs> I want your listeners to know there is still hope. I still have hope, friend. I believe in the beloved community. I believe that we will see a day where we are not judged by the color of our skin, but by the content of our character. I have hope in people. You know what? We've seen our worst over the last couple of weeks, but we're better than that. I'm we sure are better than that. And so I'm going to do everything I can to advocate for hope, hope that I define as an expected behavior, a behavior that exceeds where we are right now. I just want to leave on the notion that it takes courage and faith to have hope. But I have hope, a belief in every one of us that places a demand upon our heart to believe for the absolute best outcome. I'm going to look for signs of hope. I'm going to seek out hope. And I am going to be an agent of hope every single day. And nobody is going to put that flame out until the day I die. Wow. We'll just put an exclamation <laughs> there. Thank you so much, Rick. Thank you, my friend, Kevin. God bless you, and I love you, brother. Love you, brother. Thank you. Wow. Okay, before I share my reflections on this episode, let me say this. If you enjoyed this conversation and you haven't yet heard episode 146, Searching for Hope, you might want to go back and pick that one up. 
You might also want to check out Rick's brand new podcast, How You Living. It's available wherever you listen to podcasts, and we'll include a link in the show notes. Now, about this conversation, I hope my conversation with Rick helps shed light on what's going on in the world around us. And more than that, I hope it inspires you to take action, to do some reflection. And I think most of us are doing just that, looking within, looking around, and pondering what is it that I can do. Imagine if each of us took time for self-reflection, meditation, and our prayer to discover even a very short list of what I will do rather than a much longer list of what you should do. Imagine how the world might change. So let's make this personal. What are the conversations you want or need to have? What are the conversations I want or need to have? And take action steps to have those conversations, especially if you feel or fear they might be uncomfortable. Lean into them. I think you'll find it's easier than you think it might be. And what is the change or changes I am committed to making? Ask that question. Follow through on those changes. We landed having hope that the best is yet to come and that together we can make it better. But only together. Let's be light and love to those around us. As always, you have an invitation to reach out to me, Kevin, at higherpurposepodcast.com. If you prefer email, call or text at 678-744-5111. Thanks for joining me today. Remember who you are and what you do is making a difference, and you are lighting a way for others on this road less traveled in business, leadership, and life. Godspeed on your journey until we connect again. What could 10 days of gratitude do for you? Find out what hundreds of people have experienced and make a change that can last a lifetime at thegratitudechallenge.community because it's better when we do things together.